Our lesson this morning is taken from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Really, I feel that I should read you just a few verses from the account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and then our main passage of Scripture, which is from Acts 19. The Christian church has, of course, great festivals that mark the golden milestones in our experience in faith. We celebrate the coming of the Son of God at Advent or Christmas. He came into flesh, incarnate, the incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt amongst us in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then we come to Good Friday. I always wondered why it was called good, because it was on that day that Jesus died upon a cross. But he came not only to be our Messiah, but to offer up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And so he did that on the cross. And by that cross we are reconciled to God. But the cross would have had no meaning apart from the mighty resurrection, which is Easter, when God brought him back from the dead, and he came back from the dead in great power and glory and gave to us the assurance of eternal life. For some 40 days he appeared amongst his followers, giving them infallible proofs of the fact that he was alive promising them that there would soon come to them power from on high, that they would be visited with another which would be like unto himself, one who would not leave them to be orphanless but would always be with them, one who would be teaching and reminding them of the things which he had taught, even the Holy Spirit. And so on the festival of Pentecost, the great festival of first fruits, the Gentiles now have the door beginning to be opened to them. So in Acts chapter 2, we read these words, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed, and they marveled, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them speak in our own language, to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and non-Jews, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and they continued in amazement and with great precaution perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? And now then, from Acts chapter 19, and it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper upper country, came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the Jews to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And they were in all about twelve men. Amen. May God bless to our understanding these important readings from his word. And now then this morning we have come to our recognition of Pentecost Sunday. This is a very important Sunday in the history of the church because the coming of the Holy Spirit and because there is a great deal of influence, a great deal of emphasis in the day in which we live upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in that upper room made a great promise and it was a great legacy. I wanted to try to find some illustration and I think I found one which will catch our young people's attention which maybe you have heard, but it, I've tried to check it out, and as far as I can tell, it's true. And it speaks a lot about legacies. You know, I can't resist telling you one of the funniest jokes I ever heard is about a, a lawyer. You know, there's an old saying that where there is a will, there are relatives. And <laughs> there was this lawyer who was reading a will, and uh, so all of the relatives were greedily there trying to see who was going to get what. And uh, so the lawyer started reading the will, and it said, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spin it all. <laughs> then he went on to say, and to my Aunt Margaret, whom I promised to remember in my will, hi, Aunt Margaret. <laughs> but, but I read an interesting story about another man who, at 55 years of age, found himself sort of washed up on the beach in life and washed up in the pits of despair and depression. His real name is Jack Verm, W-U-R-M. He was walking on a beach out in California. He had gone bankrupt in business. He was discouraged. He was just killing time, walking along the beach, kicking in the sand. And then his eyes caught something that was sticking up in the sand. It was a half-hidden bottle. It appeared that something was in it, so he kicked it idly and stooped down and examined the bottle. He saw that there was a note inside it, so he finally broke it open and read the note. And it said, and I quote, To avoid confusion, I leave my entire estate to the lucky person who finds this bottle and to my attorney, Barry Cohen, share and share alike, signed Daisy Alexander, dated June 20th, 1937. Well, the name Daisy Alexander didn't mean anything to Jack Verm, so he passed it off as some sort of crank joke. However, later he learned that Daisy Alexander was the heiress to the vast singer sewing machine fortune, and that she was indeed a real person, that she lived in the city of London, and that if he could prove that the note which he had found was true, he would be entitled to inherit half of a $12 million estate. Research revealed that Daisy Singer Alexander was an eccentric lady who amused herself by tossing bottles into the Thames River with notes in them. She died at 81 in 1939 and left no final will. 
Verm claimed that the fortune uh, was his, and so it began to wind its way through all of the complicated court procedures. An ocean current expert testified that a bottle dropped in the Thames River could actually wash into the English Channel, then into the North Sea, and through the Bering Straits into the North Pacific, and end up either in California or Mexico. He said that the journey would take approximately 12 years. Actually, it took 11 years and three quarters, and Jack Verm found the courts to verify the will, and he had found a fortune in a bottle, a great legacy. When Jesus left, he left us a will and a testament. And in his will, he left us something greater than any fortune which we could ever find in any bottle, no matter how much we think we need money. He left us a fortune through his legacy, ministered to us by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. He told his followers in that upper room that he was going away. But he said, I am not going to leave you orphans. I am not going to leave you without comfort. But I am calling for another who will come and walk by your side. One who will bring to your remembrance the things which I have taught you. One will, will, who will teach you other things which you can't yet now understand. The disciples were bewildered in their sadness, and they could not take all of this in at that time. But then came the events of the next day. Stunned by his being taken out to Golgotha, nailed to a cross, shocked by an earthquake that shook the earth, and by darkness that hid the noonday sun, by strange portents from another world that spoke to them in that night. And then, three days later, with this tremendous news that he had risen from the dead, they were frightened, frightened with joy, and frightened because they realized that the one with whom they had walked for three years was God Almighty, scaled down in human flesh. The very earth beneath their feet reeled and rocked, but they became emboldened with a new power. And as Jesus appeared to them over those 40 days and 40 nights, showing to them through many infallible proofs, that he was real and that he was alive and instructing them to wait in Jerusalem. And then on that day of ascension, when he ascended into heaven, telling them to abide there, that they were to be his witnesses even to the ends of the earth, but they were to wait for power that would come upon them by the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit and the greatest power that this world has ever known was not the power which was released in 1942 with the, with the chain reaction that was sustained uh, creating the advent of nuclear power. The greatest power that this world has ever known comes from the power of Almighty God himself, the power of the Holy Spirit, investing in men's lives and transforming them from their lower instincts which would debase them into creatures of great value and great worth, whose love could be demonstrated and shown to other people in a remarkable way. 
And so it is that on that day of Pentecost, that that same Peter, who had been the uh, coward who had quailed beneath the questioning of a little servant maid and had screamed that he did not even know who Jesus was, is now bold enough to stand up in the presence of a ridiculing mob when the great demonstration of the mighty rushing wind and the great demonstration of fire had come and the realization that the power of God was amongst them in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This Peter becomes emboldened and he is no longer weakling. He is no longer a coward. But now he speaks with authority. He speaks to the very people who nailed Jesus to the cross. And when they walk away from hearing Jesus, they do not comment about his tremendous literary illusions. They don't talk about the structure and form of his sermon. They don't say, wasn't that a marvelous thing that he said this morning? But they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They realized that they had been in that very crowd that had put Jesus to death. And the message which Peter brought to them was a message of salvation. But the Roman soldier who came and screamed at Peter, Peter, you don't know. I'm the one who blindfolded him and spat in his face. And another said, I pushed the crown of thorns on his head and saw the blood. Peter, I beat him when he couldn't carry his cross. And Peter said, he'll forgive you. He'll give you a crown of righteousness. He'll cleanse you from all that you've done. He'll bring to you love. He'll change your heart from the bitterness and the hatred that you've known because that's why he came. And that's what he did on the cross to demonstrate his love. And so there is a transformed Peter at Pentecost. Peter plus the power of the Holy Spirit. It's no wonder that the authorities thought that they could silence them and then saw that they could not do it. You remember they gathered and commanded that they were to teach no more in that name. And the name is the name of Jesus. But you start seeing that name all the way through the book of Acts. And you start seeing that name coupled with great demonstrations of power in the Holy Spirit. All of that crowd gathered from corners of the world, hearing in their own native tongue in which they were born in a miracle of communication, in a reversal of the Tower of Babel, God speaking to them. It would be as much as if today uh, Prime Minister Begin should get on an airplane in Jerusalem and fly to New York and take Piedmont, if he can make it, down to Asheville and get off the airplane and come out here to Montreat and walk down the aisle of the church and speak to you personally. And you would say to him, how did you know my name? How did you know my name? And here are these people who think that God Almighty, what could he know about each one of them as individuals? And yet he cares about them as individual people. And so personal salvation is here communi communicated. And that personal salvation creates a chain reaction that spreads to the ends of the earth. And so we see it as the gospel begins to spread, not only from that event that took place on that day of Pentecost where 3,000 are converted and baptized, but then we see them preaching and when they are put to death and persecuted, it simply scatters the gospel. 
when the greatest opponent of the Jesus of Nazareth that could possibly be, a fanatical person by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who receives authority from the chief priest to persecute every single believer in Jesus of Nazareth, sets out to catch them one by one and put the men, women, and children into prison. We see him one day when he allows the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to be placed at his feet, and he gives his approval. But when Stephen dies, crying out to Jesus, he sees Jesus standing. Someone has said that Jesus stood to greet him when he sees Jesus standing. He says to them what Jesus said to the crowd on the cross, Father, forgive them. Do not lay this charge to their, to their uh, account. And do you know what those people said? They said that was not the face of a mere man. That was the face of an angel. He had been transformed by the power of God speaking to him there. And so the church begins to spread. And then there was this strange case of Cornelius, a very good Roman centurion, who was a proselyte to Judaism and who believed the things in the Old Testament concerning what Moses had taught and what the prophets had taught and what the Psalms had taught. And this man who worships God is praying. And God tells him that someone is going to come and visit him. And that someone happened to be a very narrow-minded, racially prejudiced person by the name of Peter, who had been told that he was to go to Cornelius' house and take him a personal presentation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's good news that you're going to be redeemed if you turn in saving faith to, in faith to Jesus Christ. So Peter goes, and, but he doesn't go without a typical Petrine incident in which a net is let down from heaven in a vision, and he is told to rise and kill and eat, but there are all manner of unclean animals there, and only Peter would have the audacity to say to God himself, I have never touched anything common or unclean. And God, spanking his still so human apostle, says, Peter, whatever I call clean, don't you dare call it common or unclean. You go to Cornelius' house. Yes, Lord. <laughs> and Peter is gone to Cornelius' house. And the Holy Spirit comes to Cornelius. And we see the power of God demonstrated there. And Peter learns that God is no respecter of persons. And then we begin to see in the city of Antioch that the disciples are now being called Christians. Then we see a council that takes place in Jerusalem. This is after Saul of Tarsus' conversion, and he is now called Paul, and he begins to take the gospel every place. He had gone into Philippi and seen the racial distinctions and class distinctions fall, where he had been beaten by a, a Roman soldier. And that Roman soldier, when an earthquake comes and is about to suicide, Paul calls to him, don't do yourself any harm, even though this man had had Paul cruelly beaten. Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. And the man comes trembling in and realizes that there's something remarkable about this stranger, this prisoner that he's never seen in any other. And he says, what shall I do? And the same answer at Peter, that Peter gave at Pentecost comes to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And he does, and he's converted that night in his household, and he washes the wounds that he had inflicted, giving to us an example that if we claim to have been converted by Jesus, we need to go back and make amends and correct wrongs that we have done when we come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then so on, Paul continues, taking the gospel from city to city into the debauched, licentious, sex-sodden city of Corinth, he takes the gospel. Then into the idolatrous, sensual city of Ephesus, he takes the gospel. A great riot occurs because he breaks up the trade that's going to be wrought there through the silversmiths' union and making little uh, miniature replicas of the great uh, temple to Diana of the Ephesians. But it's there that our story begins where he first came. He meets certain disciples there, some certain disciples, and we're always puzzled about these people as to just how much they knew. And why, Paul asked this question. He came to Ephesus and finding some disciples or certain disciples. Now, the word disciple usually means Christian. That's the usual word for Christian. And he said to them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's interesting. That's a personal question about your faith. And if I passed out little slips of paper and I said to you, would you please write on this piece of paper, fill in the blank, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What would you write? What would you put on the piece of paper? Personal questions are always dangerous. You never ask a lady how much she weighs, but once. You, you never ask um, a person how much money they make. That's considered uncouth and impolite and rude. But here Paul asks a personal question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He sensed that something was wrong. What was wrong? What was wrong with them? Perhaps they were missing joy. Now they knew something of the facts about Jesus. We're told that in the preceding chapter, that Apollos knew correctly and these disciples the facts concerning Jesus. And they were baptized into the baptism of John, but John was looking forward to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And John did not get to see that great event that took place at Pentecost. And these people did not know about what had taken place at Pentecost, apparently. And so Paul here says to them, Unto what were you baptized? An unbaptized Christian didn't, didn't enter into the minds of the earliest Christians. They believed in baptism very strongly. And they said unto John's baptism, and Paul said, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, a change of mind and heart, saying unto the people that they should believe on him that should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. They receive an unusual demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit here. Now, there are times, like in chapter 8, where the Ethiopian becomes a believer in Jesus, and there's no demonstration of tongues given. In the citation I made a moment ago of the Philippian jailer, the Roman citizen, or Lydia, in that same town of Philippi, 
Uh, there is nothing to indicate of the poor demented slave girl who followed Paul around in that city and out of whom a demon was cast. Uh, none of these uh, seem to have received these signed gifts, and yet we believe they became solid believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So the gifts are different. They come to some people. They do not come to others. The gifts are varied. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are varied. Uh, and they are varied for good reason. Now then, what are we going to learn from our passage here and from this personal question about our faith? We find, first of all, that they had a new appreciation of their salvation. That's what I've been talking about when I've stressed the fact of Jesus dying upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and our appropriation of forgiveness and reconciliation to God through that sacrifice. That's the tremendous gift of salvation. That's the greatest of all gifts that he could bring. I'll never forget those happy days that I got to spend in Scotland studying at the University of Edinburgh. And one of the books which you've heard me cite before, Beside the Bonnie Briar Bush by Ian McLaren, tells a wonderful story about a young man whose mother had died. He her, his mother had wanted him very much to be a minister of the gospel. And she, on her deathbed, had given him her watch. And she had cautioned him that if he did choose to follow Christ, she said, and to take up his cross, you will always find that he carries the heavy end of the cross himself. Well, he did go off to seminary. He went through the University of Edinburgh and distinguished himself by his scholarship. And then he graduated from New College and made tremendous academic distinctions and was awarded the gold medal for scholarship. And then he came uh, to his little church at Drumtochty, and he was going to preach his first sermon. And he thought that surely, since he was such a great scholar, that he ought to incorporate all of this enormous learning into his first sermon that he would talk about the contributions of Hegelian dialectic to an understanding of the Christian faith. And he began to think about all of the theologians, Schleiermacher and Hegel and the other Germans. And then uh, he noticed that his auntie, who was his housekeeper, never said a word to him, but she seemed to be uh, not at peace. And he could sense that there was something wrong with her. And so he asked her to speak what was on her heart. And she says these words, Do not be angry with me, John, but I'm concerned about the Sabbath, for I've been praying ever since you were called to Tromtokti that it might be a great day, your first day in the pulpit, and that I might see you come into your people, laddie, with the beauty of the Lord upon you, according to the old prophecy. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of them that preach good tidings a peace. And then she stopped. Go on, Auntie, he said. He whispered, tell me all that's on your mind. She said, well, it's not for me to advise you. I'm an old, simple woman who knows nothing but her Bible and her catechism. And it's not that I'm afeard for the new views or about your faith, for I have a mind that there are many things the Holy Spirit has to tell us. And I know well that the man that follows Christ will not lose himself in any thicket. But, John, it's the folk I'm anxious about. It's the flock of sheep over which the Lord 
has made you a shepherd that you are to feed. She could see his face. And then she pressed his hand and said to him, You must mind, laddie. They're not so clever and learned like what you are. Just plain country folk. Everyone with his own temptation and sore troubled with many a care of this world. They'll need a clear word to comfort their heart and to show them the way everlasting. You'll say what's right, no doubt, and a body will be pleased with you. But, oh, laddie, 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 be sure you say a good word for Jesus Christ. That's our bounds of salvation. This is what happened here. These people were filled with joy because they had a new understanding of their salvation. They were filled with joy because their faith, which had been stagnant, now becomes fresh and vibrant and growing with the new growth that the blessed Holy Spirit brings. Out in West Texas, where I come from, the wind blows tremendously, as you have noticed if you saw the terrible hurricane that hit Wichita Falls a few weeks ago. I can still remember seeing one time a photograph in Life magazine of a straw that was blown through a telephone pole. It was sticking through a telephone pole. How on earth could a weak straw be stuck through a telephone pole? By the power of that wind. So, the power of God can come into weak lives and when they are surrendered to him, they can do great and mighty things for the Lord. Things that are unbelievable as far as the world can see. Things that are tremendous. This boy John brought into that place a message of salvation after his old auntie had spoken to him. And it was a great day for that church. And then lastly, these people in Ephesus had a new guide. They got new guidance. The gospel spread throughout Ephesus and indeed all of Asia. And today when you pick up that marvelous letter of Paul's to the Ephesian Christians and read it, you'll see him, the Holy Spirit at work there. And you'll see that 12 times in the letter to the Ephesians, he emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. 12 times he speaks of the Holy Spirit. Guiding us, amidst the complex moral issues and problems that we face in life, speaking us, to us through the Holy Bible which he inspired, speaking through us through the mutual benefit of Christian friends and the fellowship that we know together in him. The Holy Spirit comes and does just that thing, and he does it in such a wonderful way. Jesus had said of the Holy Spirit that he would be the greater teacher, and the great teacher indeed he is. I would like to close with a favorite story of mine. Tom Steyerwalt always loves this because it happens to be true. Over in Germany there is a great cathedral, the Freiburg Cathedral, and when the organist of that church became too old to play the organ anymore, his fingers were ridden with arthritis he was made the custodian and given the charge of the magnificent instrument. 
One day a visitor came into the cathedral and asked permission to play the celebrated instrument, but he was refused. No one, said the old custodian, but myself and the present organist has been permitted to touch this organ since Bach died. After much persuasion, the visitor was reluctantly granted permission to play a few notes. He slipped onto the organ bench and he touched first one tone, then another, and then running his fingers along the keys, he filled the entire cathedral with such wonderful music that the old organist was entranced and his eyes were filled with tears. When he had finished playing, the old organist tremblingly said to him, Sir, what might your name be? And the young visitor replied, My name is Felix Mendelssohn. The old organist used to tell the story to visitors who were coming through the cathedral. And he would always end it by saying, and to think that I all but missed hearing Felix Mendelssohn play on the organ here. Well, child of God, there is a greater than Felix Mendelssohn here. There is the Holy Spirit who can take all of the discord in our homes, in our churches, in our own personal lives, and bring them into the unity that Paul writes about in that Ephesian letter. He brings them into their hearts by joy and by a willingness to submit to one another, not to be selfish. And he brings forth from our lives the beauty which the world needs to see in order to know and to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God. The greater teacher is here, and he is ready to open unto us a better world and a better life and a faithful following of him. All that's the best in anything that's spoken in any church service you've ever been in comes from the Holy Spirit. He is the greater teacher. Let us bow in prayer. O oh God, our Father, we thank you for the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. We know lives our minds or hearts this morning would be that if he is not Lord, we should this day acknowledge him so. And that if he is Lord, that we shall reaffirm that faith in him by walking from this chapel with a determination to seek from your holy book guidance and direction for our lives and from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to bring our lives into conformity with thy will. And Father, will you comfort our hearts by helping us to know that grace which is in Jesus, which is more than sufficient for all our sins. Will you lead us to higher ground for the glory of our Redeemer? And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.